Happy Sunday, First Baptist Church of Grey Gables. Hope you're all having a wonderful week. Thank you so much for tuning in to our online service. We are going to do this as long as we need to during this difficult time that we're going through. Uh, a couple of announcements before we dive into the text. One is this Sunday, uh, we are going to be ordaining two deacons, uh, Brother Charles Zoller and Brother Phil Hatcher on the deacon service. And so we're going to have an ordination service. So next week, we're going to start... Um, a series on church polity, church government, church structure, uh, which is in, just in time for uh, the election month. Uh, but we're going to be uh, diving into the offices of the church. And so uh, there will be part of the sermon will be involved next week that will just be talking about what it means to be a deacon. I hope you engage in that and I hope you listen and are, and are, and are encouraged uh, by the word of God as we look at uh, how the Bible directs how we run and orchestrate uh, and organize our church. And so <clears throat> we'll be taking a break from First Thessalonians for a little bit and then at the end of that service on Sunday. We won't be able to do that on the online service. We will be ordaining these men and praying over them. And so uh, if it looks a little bit different next week in the online service, uh, that's why. I want to give you a heads up uh, and so keep you involved with that. We are, however, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, we're really going to look at the first half of verse 3 and ask the question, what is the will of God? Let's examine that. What is God's will for my life? We always think about that question. What is God's plan? What does God desire? What does he want for my life? Well, this sermon is very, very important. So I'm going to read along uh, the first two verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and then the first half of verse 3. So I hope you have your Bibles open. hope you're reading with me and let's read God's word now together. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. First Baptist Church of Gray Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Would you join me in a word of prayers? We thank God for the beauty that is his word. Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. We are asking you this morning to speak to us through your word. We know that we as your people, that we are dependent upon every word that comes from your mouth. Lord, if, Lord, if we were not able to hear your word this morning, we would be lost and blind. But Father, you have opened our eyes. You've opened our ears. You've opened our hearts and you have caused us to understand your word. So Father, we pray this morning that you would grant us the grace to rightly understand this passage in 1 Thessalonians. Lord, we don't simply just want to understand this for knowledge's sake so we can just grow in knowledge, but we desire deeply to walk in a manner worthy of you, worthy of the gospel, knowing that in ourselves we do not have the strength to do so. And so knowing also, though, by the work of your Holy Spirit, by the power of the resurrection that's at work among us, Lord God, by the grace upon grace that we have through your Son and by the proclamation of your word, you will do this. You will make your people more like your son Jesus. And so, Father, would you grant us much grace now? And would you make your word to have its desired effect in our lives? We pray this in the precious name of your son, King Jesus. Amen and amen. 
For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, before we actually dive into the text today, by way of introduction, we need to do a little bit of theological spade work to prepare the ground. And so uh, the question that I want to attempt to answer before we look at our text and begin to unpack all that is there is this, what does God's word mean by the will of God? How are we to understand this expression the will of God. We see it all throughout scripture. We use it in our, uh, our church language. I, I believe that it's appropriate, however, uh, to think of God's will by three distinct perspectives. And the, the reason I think that this is appropriate is because this is how God's will is expressed to us through scripture by three distinct perspectives of the will of God. God's will is sometimes, first and foremost, uh, referred to as his decretive will. We see this prevalent throughout all of scripture. His decretive, his sovereign, his hidden will. We see it in texts like Isaiah chapter 46, 9 and 10, where we read, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. I did end from the beginning as opposed to end from the beginning there. I'm sure you caught that. That's a reference to God's decretive or secret or hidden will. Proverbs 19.21 also says, this has been a theme text for the year 2020 for me, there are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. That means he directs the entire course of history so that all things fall out according to his sovereign or his decretive will. That's how God works. We see the same thing in the New Testament in James chapter 3 verses 13 through 15. It says, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such a city and spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away way. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. So that is God's decretive will, his sovereign or his hidden will. But we also see in scripture what we call God's desired will, God's desired will. We see this all throughout the, the text as well. We come to passages like Ezekiel chapter 18 verses 23 and 32 and we read in verse 23, do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? Verse 32 says, For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God, therefore turn and live. In other words, the Lord does not desire for anyone to die. That is a reference to his desired will. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, we read, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Or in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is all a reference to God's desired will. Notice that God's decretive will is sure to come to pass, 
but it's not so with his desired will. In fact, often when he's expressing his desired will, he's expressing something that will not come to pass. For instance, desiring that all men will be saved, but knowing also that all men won't be saved. That's not something that will come to pass. But there is a third sense in which we speak of the Lord's will, and that is his disclosed will. So we have his decreed of will, desired will, and disclosed will. Nice and alliterated because we're Baptists. His disclosed will is what he's revealed to us in the scriptures, what he desires for and reveals to us, to com- uh, he commands us in his scripture by his revealed will to obey. This is what God wants for us and commands from us. It's what's been disclosed to us through the scriptures. We see that in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. It says, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity in heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. That is, doing what he has commanded us to do, what he has disclosed for us to do, what he's revealed for us to do. That's his disclosed will. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 is probably the most popular form of his disclosed will. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Okay, so how do we discern what is the will of God? It's by knowing what it is that he's disclosed to us and obeying it, finding what he's revealed to us in his scriptures and obeying. Likewise, we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, this. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That is God's disclosed will for us. Now, I think we need to understand the will of God in this way, in these perspectives, in order for us to understand the text this morning. But I'm going to ask you uh, to take what we just learned about God's will and, and set it aside for a moment. We're going to return to it in a bit. I want to encourage you to keep this idea of God's decretive, desirative, and disclosed will in the back of your mind as we now move to examine the text. As Paul writes here, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. What is Paul referring to here? Is he referring to the decretive will of God, the desired will of God, or the disclosed will of God for the Thessalonians? Well, the big idea of our text today is quite simple. Our sanctification is the will of God. I know what you're thinking. What a genius statement that you would look at the first half of verse 3 and put that together, Pastor Cody. Yes, I know. Our sanctification is the will of God. It's pretty plain in the text, isn't it? So let's jump into the text itself. Verse 3, the first half. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Uh, we see that it is obviously God's will for us specifically and for the Thessalonians at that time, but also by extension to us, to be sanctified. Uh, Notice that our sentence starts with the word for, which ties it directly to what we talked about last week and that what came before it, specifically verses 1 and 2. Remember last week we talked about how Paul urged and exhorted the Thessalonians to abound more and more to do what? To walk and to please God. To walk as they ought and to please God. For this is the will of God, our sanctification. 
God's will for the Thessalonians and for all his people is holiness. See, the word translated sanctification here is the exact same word we see in chapter 3, verse 13, where it says this, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. That's the word before our God and Father, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. It's the same word. Now, the reason the translators chose to translate it sanctification in verse 3 of chapter 4 is because the form of the word refers to the process of growing in holiness or being made holy versus the state of holiness. But regardless, the idea is the exact same. The goal of the prayer in chapter 3, verse 13, is the same that Paul urges and exhorts in chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, which is the will of God. It's the holiness of God's people. God's will for his people is holiness. In fact, if we think about this in broadened text of scripture, when God addresses his people at Mount Sinai, back in Exodus 19, I want you to think about this. This is what the Lord tells Moses. He says, thus you shall, sh- thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, which is the people of Israel, and tell the children of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." But all the laws and statutes, all the laws and statutes that given in the Old Testament there were grounded in that simple reality and truth. That God is holy and he desires for those people to be a holy nation. It's what we see at the beginning of Leviticus chapter 9 in the holiness code there. You shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. In fact, the Old Testament teaches everywhere that God is holy. In fact, it teaches that he's unique. There's no one like him. He is separate. He is holy in that way. God alone is uncreated without beginning or end. God alone is self-sufficient with no unmet needs. God alone is unchanging the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is utterly different. He is holy, holy, holy. He is ontologically holy. And, and we, we attest to that. We know that. But that's hard for us to therefore uh, strive towards because we know he's altogether different. But But the way we're supposed to strive toward God is the fact that God is also holy and distinct in his moral purity. This is the way in which God is holy and we are to be like him. He is good in his very nature. He is incapable of doing wrong. All that he does is righteous. All that he does is good because he does it in accordance to his own character, which is perfect and pure and morally good. God is holy, holy, holy in his moral purity. And in this sense, God's people are to be like him. They're to be like him. Now, now just take a moment with me and consider what this looked like for ancient Israel. What it looked like for ancient Israel, ancient Israel the people of the Old Testament, God's chosen people in the Old Testament to, to understand their call to holiness. What did it look like for them? 
Well, first, we already said that they were called to be like him. They were called to be morally pure like the Lord their God. They were to imitate him and his righteousness, his mercy, his compassion, his justice, his goodness. They were to imitate him and his love for the good and his hatred for all things evil. But for Israel, remember, it wasn't just a matter of moral purity. In Israel, the law, as it was given at Mount Sinai, the law taught and illustrated for them the need to be holy, the need to be distinct, and the need to be set apart for the Lord. This is what the law illustrated, their need to be set apart, their need to be holy. For instance, you see laws in the Old Testament such as, you shall not sow two types of seed in the same field. You should not wear Uh, clothes made out of two types of material. What in the world would be the point of that? Well, it functioned in a way to teach them that they were to be set apart. They were not to intermingle. There were other laws that explicitly commanded separation, right? We, We know they were not to intermarry. They were not to make alliances with pagan nations. They were not to have table fellowship with pagan nations. They were to depend on the Lord and be set apart for him. Furthermore, we also know that God's law, the law that was given to them in the Pentateuch, God gave laws that served as external markers, God gave laws that served as outward, external markers for the people of Israel. Things like circumcision or or food laws or Sabbath observance, right? These were the external markers that identified them as the people of God. Here's the whole reason I bring this up. Because we know that with the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, there has been a seismic shift in the way that God's people are to be identified. We have to understand this in order to learn what it means that this is God's will for you, your sanctification. See, Paul, I think, explains it very well to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians. He's writing to a group of Gentiles, a a people who weren't a part of the chosen nation of Israel, and yet were, were set free and united to Christ by faith and brought into this universal church. Paul says to them, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near to the blood of Christ. Or by the blood of Christ, excuse me. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Well, what is that middle wall of separation? There are so many things that could be enumerated here that Paul is talking about, but I think certainly it would at least include the circumcision, the food laws, and all of those external markers that set one people apart from another. Paul continues in verse 14 of Ephesians 2. He says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Again, I emphasize this because what are we now to make of this holiness or sanctification if it means that we are to be set apart, if we are to be morally pure? What does this look like? What does this holiness look like, this sanctification look like for the New Testament church? Well, I would argue that the external markers have been removed. 
the external markers that were given uh, in the law to ancient Israel, those external markers that set them uh, aside as a people are removed for the New Testament church. I believe the Bible supports that. There are no longer any physical borders that mark off the people of God from the nations. There are no longer any lasting physical signs performed to the body that would identify us. There is no longer a special diet that distinguishes God's people. The separation is no longer physical. But, however, even though the external markers, I believe, according to the word of God, are done away with, the need for holiness among God's people has not changed one iota. We are still called, our mandate is still to be holy as our God is holy. That holiness is no longer identifiable by external markers, but God's will for his people in this way have not changed. Paul is saying that the will of God for his people is holiness. We are still to be distinct. Now, I think that begs the question, if I'm understanding the text correctly, then how are we to be set apart? How are we to be distinct people given that we look just like everybody else? That we live where everyone else lives and that there aren't specific, distinguishing, external characteristics that make it clear. We don't have a jacket that tells us that we're in the club. We don't have a specific hairdo. All of those historical, cultural markers have been removed. Yet, we're still called holiness. We're still called to be set apart. So what does that look like? Well, I'll tell you, I wrestled with this for a long time because I think the answer is a lot harder to formulate than we realize. But, but before I get to the answer, I want, I want to restate what, I, what is already clear before I move on to what's a little bit more challenging. What's that that's clear? Well, it's this. Those who belong to Christ have been in Christ through the proclamation of the gospel, effectually called, regenerated, and through faith and repentance, justified. They are being sanctified and they will be glorified. They've been transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. We are distinct as a reality that exists solely because of Christ's finished work. So just as Israel was brought out of Egypt and was made into a holy nation in the old covenant through the new covenant, believers are brought out of the dominion of death into the kingdom of light and made into a holy nation. Just as Israel was rescued from Pharaoh and his gods in order to serve the true and living God, so were the Thessalonians rescued from their idols to serve the living and true God. Just as Israel was commanded that, that you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor shall you walk in the ways of the Canaanites, walk, walk where you are going. Instead, you shall follow my rules, follow my statutes, and walk in them in the same way the Thessalonians were to walk in a manner worthy of God. Do we see that? Before we move on, we have to see that clearly. From Paul's inspired perspective, the church at, at Thessalonica and God had the same responsibility as Israel to be distinct, to be set apart and holy. But they no longer stood apart because they kept themselves from unclean Gentiles. In fact, Paul is writing this letter to unclean Gentiles. They worked with unclean Gentiles. They most likely had table fellowship with unclean Gentiles. All of those dividing walls of hostility have been brought down. The barriers have been destroyed. And so then what? Well, that brings us to the crux of the problem here. 
that brings us to the crux of the problem. As we seek to apply this text, we seek to think about this uh, because here's the reality. You heard me say this before. There are really two ditches that we fall into. When, when we ask this question of how am I now, the New Testament church, to be set apart, to be holy, to be sanctified? Because on this side, you have the tendency to be conformist. To immediately want to return to Egypt or to be just like the Canaanites. But on the other side, you have the temptation to be isolationist or separatist, to make up your own external markers. If God's not going to give us any outward markers, we'll make up our own. And there is always the danger of falling into one of those two ditches. We could think of it in terms of animals. We have a tendency to be like a chameleon, where we blend in so well, no one would ever, ever, ever guess that we're a Christian. That's a problem. Or we have the tendency to be like a musk ox. You know what a musk ox does when it feels threatened? It circles up, everyone faces inside, they put the young in the middle and they gather around, they stick their rumps out into the world. That is a separatist, isolationist position. Listen, conforming to the world is not an option. That ditch is not an option. Because the world is, is fading away. It's under the control of the evil one. Children of light cannot conform to darkness. We cannot conform to the world. We cannot simply go along with the flow. If, if the world is a river and it's heading down a waterfall to certain doom where it's plummeting over, we cannot sit back on our raft and enjoy the view thinking, well, I've got a ticket in my hip pocket taking me off to heaven at the last moment. Listen, much of the church has taken that position, or at least they seem to. In fact, not only are, in they, are they in the raft heading down the river, but, but some of them have broken out the oars and they're paddling as fast as they can go to go along with the current to keep up. They work harder at looking like the world than they do proclaiming the gospel. And that's not an option for us. However, Isolation is not an option for the people of God either. Isolating ourselves, separating ourselves from the world is not an option for the people of God. We are to walk properly before outsiders. The world is actually supposed to see our walk. Our Lord has commanded to do our good deeds before others so that they might glorify our Father. We are sojourners, pilgrims, heavenly citizens living in a foreign land and there's nowhere to hide. Any attempt to hide would be futile. You want to know the primary reason? It's because think about it. If this is isolationism, right, it, what does it do? It looks inward. It gathers up and it isolates itself from the world. You know what you can never isolate yourself from? Yourself. <laughs> Wherever you go, so there you are. You can't escape the problem, which is the remaining flesh. And so that is not the answer. And so if we return to our river illustration, the isolationists just think that they can just get out the river any point in time. That they can just stand on the, the banks and watch. It's not possible. And so where is the path that guides us between these two ditches? What is the solution to the problem? Well, I think the answer is on, in our verse, actually. Though it may not be obviously so. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Okay, we're coming back full circle now. 
Remember the beginning as we looked at and saw how the will of God is expressed in Scripture? Now let's ask the question, what does Paul mean in our text when he says the will of God? Is it God's decretive will that we uh, be sanctified? Is it his desired will that we be sanctified? Or is it his disclosed will that we be sanctified? Yes is the answer. Our sanctification is God's decretive, desired, and disclosed will. See, that's the path that navigates us between the two ditches. Now listen, in context, in the immediate context, Paul's focus here is on God's disclosed will. It's God's disclosed will that his people walk according to what he's revealed, that they are to be set apart, that they are to imitate their God and Savior, that they are to increase and abound in love, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. That is the Lord's disclosed will. Holiness is the conformity to the will of God causing separation from the world and those who belong to it. We've discussed this before, but, but hear me. We don't need external markers because the more we conform ourselves to the likeness of Christ, the more we won't fit in with the world. So listen, we don't need a special haircut, special clothes, special programs. We don't need anything special because the more we love the Lord and follow him, the more the world hates us. They just do. The more we stick out in a world of darkness. Why? Because our light shines brighter and brighter as we walk in obedience to Christ. So there is no need for the external. And let me just state one thing, one tiny little sidebar today. Uh, what I've seen as a peculiar and sad tendency among God's people. And that is to have a far greater interest in what we've said is the decretive will or the hidden will, which God has not disclosed to you, which God has not told you, nor has any desire to reveal to you. And we forsake all of that, which is much that he has disclosed. So we will ponder long and hard looking under every tea leaf in order to find what God's plan is for me. What has he decreed from the beginning of time that is my plan? You want to know what God's will for you is? Read the Bible. It's disclosed to you. He tells you exactly what his will is for you. In fact, let me just paraphrase it. We read it already from 1 Thessalonians 5. It's to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. It says it right there. Listen, it doesn't mean that we don't have to make decisions, but we make decisions in light of what he has disclosed in a way that honors him. We don't need to know his, his, his hidden, his secret, his decreed of will because he's a good and sovereign God. His decreed of will, regardless, will come to pass. So, okay, yes, the reality is that though the emphasis here in our text is on his disclosed will, the other two perspectives, aspects, are also in view here. Listen, what did Paul just say in verse 1? Remember, he said, Just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Walking in a manner worthy of the Lord is pleasing to him. He desires it. He hasn't just commanded it. He desires it to be a reality for his people. Furthermore, and even uh, more significant for our consideration, this is God's decretive will, isn't it? 
This is the Lord's decretive sovereign will for his people. He isn't just commanding his people to be set apart. He has, in his son, set us apart. He's the one who transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. He's the one who empowers us to walk more and more in a way that pleases and honors him. He's the one who, at the end, will do that final separation by the judgment of his son, separating the goats and the sheep. See, at the end of the day, that is what allows us to swim against the current of this world. That's what keeps us from attempting to climb on out or to just flipping over and floating. It's hard work swimming upstream, but that is exactly what you and I are doing. We are swimming upstream. In fact, if you've ever been caught in a bad current, if you try swimming against it, it's possible, but not for long. So if the Lord was simply commanding us to swim upstream in our own strength, we would fail. But remember the promise of the Lord. Remember what he has said in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Friends, the swimming upstream is not an impossible, impossible task. Because we don't do it in our own strength, but we do it in the strength of the Lord. We are swimming in the strength of the Lord. We do it with the sure hope that regardless of what it may feel like, regardless of how it may seem in our day-to-day -day struggles that we'll never get there, we will arrive. And so we don't look over to the bank to gauge as we're swimming, how far am I going? It doesn't seem like I'm moving. It seems like I'm shifting back. We trust, we keep our eyes on the one who has swam before us, who has blazed the trail before us, and we're swimming in his current. So for this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is what God desires for you, friends. Do not conform to the world, do not separate from the world, but you are swimming in the strength of your Savior. And yes, it may feel like you're swimming upstream and you're going nowhere. But friends, if you are swimming in his current and you are focused on him, he will bring you to the end. That's his promise. This is what Paul writes to the Thessalonians and, and by proxy also to us. Do you believe it? We believe this. And so what we do now is we strive and we swim together. For this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, Lord, you know the weakness of your people. You know how feeble our knees are. You know, Lord, that, that doubt remains in our hearts and our minds. You know the temptations that we often give into. Father, we ask for forgiveness. We also, Lord, ask for that which you willingly and sovereignly give with grace to persevere, grace to see that we will reach the end, not in our own strength, but in the strength of your spirit through the grace of your son, because it is your will. Father, would you help us to believe? Would you help us also, therefore, to strive? We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Church families, we come to the time of our invitation. This is the path we're all on. 
And so we, are, we all know what it's like. If you're a Christian, you know what it's like to swim upstream against a current where it may seem like you're not growing in the Lord. You know what it's like to live in a world where everything seems to be going against you and you don't feel like you sh- you're growing at the rate that you should be. Friends, that's why it's so important that we acknowledge that A, first and foremost, we are swimming in the strength of the Lord, that if he has changed our lives, if he has changed our hearts and made us his sons and daughters, that we will arrive. And so we keep striving and we keep swimming. But friends, it's also so important that we recognize we do not do this alone. We do this with brothers and sisters in Christ. And so for you, particularly our audience who is walking Uh, who's watching online, who's walking out this Christian life apart from the regular gathering of the body, our hearts go out to you. Would you please uh, make sure you are staying connected. We will do our best to continue to connect with you, but make sure you are connected to brothers and sisters at First Baptist Church of Gray Gables and, and you can be reminded and encouraged that you're not swimming alone. Now, hopefully this cleared up some questions about God's will for you. Hopefully it cleared up uh, some questions about what it's like to grow in strength. But if you're hearing this and listening to this and you, you know that you've never had any desire to do anything but just go with the flow of the currents of this world, that you have no desire to, to please anyone but yourself, let me remind you, you were created with a, a greater purpose. You were created to bring honor and glory to the Lord who made you, who formed you, who is sustaining you now, who is giving you every breath in this life. And and you owe him righteousness. You owe him perfection, but you on your own because of your sin, because of your rebellious heart, cannot give him what you owe. And therefore there is judgment to be had for your sin. Yet because of his grace and mercy, he has sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to pay that penalty that your sin so richly deserved. And and Jesus, who was perfect, who perfectly obeyed God's law, took upon himself that punishment that you were owed. And he gives you his state of righteousness, his state of perfection, so that in Christ, by repenting of your sins, declaring that he is king of your life and turning away from your sins and resting and trusting in his finished work on the cross, that you can be saved. You can do what you were created to do. You can fulfill your one purpose in being created, which is to bring honor and glory to the King of all the earth, the Lord God. If you're hearing this this morning and you know in your heart you have never repented of your sins and received by faith this free gift that is offered to you in salvation, then friends, my, my heart goes out to you and my desire is for you to know the Lord. That you would call out to him and ask him to forgive you of your sins and grant you this repentance. And we believe he is faithful to do just that. Would you reach out to someone as well and let them know about the decision you made this week? Whatever the Lord's working, we'd love to hear about it. Please stay in touch with your pastors, with your, your new deacons who should be reaching out to you this week. And be encouraged, church. Jesus is on his throne and we are swimming in his strength. I love you. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. We hope to see you soon. Bye bye.